The All of Us Research Program recently completed its first year on a national level. This year has gone by incredibly fast, but we've also had some incredible accomplishments in the All of Us Research Program. The doors are open. Consider joining this audacious research effort. And All of Us Wisconsin will soon wrap up its first year as well. You should join this effort because without this program, we can't get closer to the answers in solving health mysteries. Participating now means being a part of history and the future of healthcare. We'll update you on the largest medical research program in our nation's history. And later, we'll hear an inspiring personal story of how all of us is offering hope to a family in our community. Maybe Scott won't benefit from this, but if I can do anything to change the outcome for my kids or my grandkids, that to me is worth it alone, making sure people know about the All of Us Research Program. It's a show about all of us inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, Freighter's Hospital, Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. We've talked about the Precision Medicine Initiative and the All of Us Research Program on previous shows. Precision medicine is healthcare custom tailored to the specific needs of an individual based on that person's unique genome. All of Us is the largest medical research program in our nation's history, seeking to build a database of the genomes from one million individuals to accelerate the science of precision medicine. With All of Us completing its first year, it's time to get an update to see how the program is doing on the national level and in our own community. Eric Dishman is the National Director of the All of Us Research Program, and he says the first full year has been nothing short of a whirlwind. This year has gone by incredibly fast, but we've also had some incredible accomplishments in the All of Us Research Program, not the least of which is our May launch. We enrolled 12,000 people in one week, and we said to the country, the doors are open. Consider joining this audacious research effort. So far, the response has been phenomenal. They have heeded the call. We have people who have joined from all 50 states. At this point, we're over 150,000 people who are joining the program. And as of now, we have over 85,000 people who have finished the entire first version of the protocol. And his excitement isn't just about how many people, but who specifically is joining the research program. We're doing incredibly well on diversity, which is a fundamental commitment of the program. More than 75% of our participants are underrepresented in biomedical research, and around 50% of those through racial and ethnic diversity, which is a fundamental goal of the program as well. A terrific start at the national level with plenty of growth hoped for in 2019. An amazing 2018. I want to thank all of our participants for your accomplishments, and I can't wait to see you on the new year. Now let's take a look on a local level as we catch up with Sarah Longenecker, Program Manager for All of Us Wisconsin at the Medical College of Wisconsin. 
Sarah explains that All of Us Wisconsin is a consortium tasked with supporting the national effort. All of Us Wisconsin is one of only 10 consortiums that make up the National All of Us Research Program. A consortium is made up of a main award site, in our case, Marshfield Clinic Research Institute, and sub-award regional medical centers and health provider organizations, like the Medical College of Wisconsin and the University of Wisconsin-Madison. We all work together to carry out the education, engagement, and enrollment goals of the program. Each consortium works to recruit the national goal of enrolling 1 million participants. All of Us Wisconsin aims to enroll 100,000 individuals across the state in the next four and a half years. With All of Us Wisconsin nearing the completion of its first year, Sarah recently shared some areas of growth for the research program here. For all of us here locally, highlights include a vigorous effort to negotiate the Spanish translation of marketing and promotional materials that will resonate better with the Milwaukee Hispanic population. We, as all of us here at MCW, have been mentioned as the most diverse department of employees, which helps reflect diversity goals both institutionally and for the program at large. Some other achievements include opening additional enrollment sites around the state. Locally here, we will be able to start taking appointments for all of us enrollments at McKinley Health Center and a 16th Street Community Health Center later this year. We also received approval to offer cab vouchers to individuals who need transportation assistance. We also now have the ability to enroll direct volunteers, as in you don't need to have a medical record or be a patient of freighter to enroll with all of us at MCW. Sarah says that the feedback and reaction she and her team receive regularly from enrollees and participants is highly positive. She shares a few examples in hopes it inspires others to become involved. We've had some great quotes from participants and great feedback. Some of them include, this is an easy way to pay it forward and contribute to science, medicine, and technology. The staff are so friendly and made the enrollment process easy. I was excited to learn about all of us here at MCW. I learned about it initially and enrolled while I was at a conference in DC before we were even awarded the grant. Participating means that I count. There are also notable and memorable stories from both participants and team members of the research program as to why they've made the decision to join all of us. We'll hear one such story in a bit. But ahead of that, we asked Sarah who's getting involved so far. Is it the diverse cross-section of our community that's hoped for? Let me start off by saying at the national level, the program has been featured as the most diverse research participation effort ever. So locally, we are contributing to that effort by seeing about 35% of our participants coming from the underrepresented in biomedical research minority populations. And we're split about 60-40% between females and male participation and ages across the board. Considering the research program's commitment to gaining genomic information from a diverse group of people, she's confident this is happening. She shares why it's so critically important to the success of all of us. This is so critical and crucial to help us achieve the overarching goal of the program, a cohort to reflect the rich diversity of our country and learn precisely how to treat people based on their biological makeup, uniqueness, and similarities. So what works for others doesn't work for me and vice versa. By continuing to increase the diversity of the cohort, we will get closer to closing guessing gap work in healthcare. With one year almost complete and several more to go, Sarah has many goals and hopes for all of us Wisconsin. Well, aside from increasing enrollments and keeping participants engaged, 
I'd like to see more featured media about the All of Us Research Program, more strategic partnerships that promote sponsorship of the program. I'd like to see someone famous, perhaps an athlete, speak up about the importance and to become an ambassador for all of us to help increase participation. I'd like to continue creating easy ways for interested individuals to learn more about the program. For example, liking the All of Us Milwaukee Facebook page, creating Twitter, Instagram. Other hopes include pop-up enrollment sites so that our team can go to the people rather than asking the people to come to us. This will be vital for our community recruitment efforts. So whether the research program comes into your community or you visit their offices, they'd love to see you in 2019. Sarah says if you want to learn more or begin enrollment, you can go to joinallofus.org anytime and learn more about the program. That's the national website. On that website, they can sign up for updates, and they can also enroll from the site. Or email us at allofus.mcw.edu. Listeners can also stop by our main enrollment site in the Curative Building on campus. You could stop by Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. What does someone need to be eligible to enroll today? In order to be eligible, all you need to be is 18 years or older, live in the U.S., and have a cell phone or an email address. Hey, that means I'm eligible. Maybe I can enroll in the research program on an upcoming show. Absolutely. We'd love to capture your enrollment story and share it with our listeners. When are you scheduled? Well, I'm not scheduled yet, but I will be soon. What about you? If you're eligible to participate, Sarah has a message for you. Well, my message today and every day would be that if you've ever had a medication not work, or not work as well as you were told or read it should. If you have ever wondered why you feel the way you do and haven't been able to understand the reasons for sickness or variability in your health, you should join this effort because without this program, we can't get closer to the answers in solving health mysteries. All of us will do for the future of medicine, disease prevention and interventional treatments, what archeology span did for discoveries that led to understanding the history of our lifetimes and how our world came to be. Participating now means being a part of history and the future of healthcare. We'll be sure to post links to get you connected with the All of Us Research Program on our CTSI website, along with the podcast of this show. While the All of Us Research Program aims to enroll at least 1 million participants to help advance precision medicine, precision medicine is designed to provide better outcomes for individuals. The promise of precision medicine is to change lives, all of our lives. Yes, in the future, but hopefully today as well. Meet Jenna, a wife and mother who has very personal interest in making sure the All of Us Research Program succeeds. Today, she's agreed to share her family's story with us. My husband and I are the storybook couple. We met each other in high school and then we got married and then we have three kids. Our family is pretty average. We're not extravagant, but we're also really happy with what life has given us so far. Jenny begins by telling us life was pretty good. Everything seemed great. Like this is how we envisioned our life right on track for what you would expect since we got married. So I think it was pretty good and comfortable. Jenna and her husband, Scott, began settling into their careers, but then some things started to change. He's a hard worker, he's an operating engineer, so like he had a really good job. I was starting my career in genetics like I wanted to, and then I lost my job. 
And that's pretty much right around when Scott started having his symptoms. Symptoms of an illness that would change their lives immeasurably and symptoms which weren't leading doctors to a diagnosis. Scott always had some respiratory issues growing up as a kid, but then they started to get more, and then we realized he was being hospitalized, and then they couldn't figure anything out, but he'd get better, and they'd send him home. And the same thing would happen. High fevers, abdominal pain, right back in the ER, they admit him just to go home with no answers to our questions. Meanwhile, based on her professional background working in genetics, Jenna became increasingly concerned. Having my background with the job that I did have, when I started seeing the high fevers and the night sweats and the weight loss, it kind of had like this red flag, like, uh, this isn't good. And soon frustration set in as Scott's symptoms remained undiagnosed. I've always been one to be respectful of doctors, but it was no conclusion, no answers. So then I started challenging the doctors and I'm like, well, have you guys ever considered seeing a hematologist? And like, oh no, no, you're just saying that because of where he worked. And I'm like, he's been hospitalized five times in one year with no different outcomes. His condition worsened, her frustration grew, and Jenna advocated harder for her husband. Our life started changing. He wasn't able to work. It was hard for me to balance going to work, taking the kids to school, and having a sick husband in the hospital. So eventually I pushed hard enough, and I'm like, I'm not leaving here until you get us a hematologist appointment. Finally, Scott did see a hematologist, and Jenna's instincts proved to be right. I was like, just do a test and ease my mind. I get a biopsy, and sure enough, so it took a full year, but Scott was diagnosed with follicular lymphoma, cancer. Follicular lymphoma. What exactly is it? We went to an expert to find out. Dr. Andrew Evans is director of the lymphoma program at Rutgers University and a member of the Scientific Advisory Board for the Lymphoma Research Foundation. Dr. Evans tells us... Follicular lymphoma is a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a cancer of the immune system. He elaborates on our immune cells. Immune cells prevent the fight infection. They grow initially in the bone marrow, go into the blood, and ultimately localize to the lymph nodes. So what happens when a patient develops any form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, since we have immune cells throughout the body, this is uncommonly in just one place in the body. It usually is in a few different areas most often in the lymph nodes, but also in other places. You may have thought, like I did, that non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is a single type of cancer. But as Dr. Evans points out... Believe it or not, there's more than 80 different kinds of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Importantly, they're all very treatable, including follicular lymphoma. As one of 80 different subtypes of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, does follicular lymphoma itself have different subtypes? There are a couple different types. The pathologists tell us this is follicular lymphoma, and then they'll give us a grade. Grade 1 and 2 and grade 3A, we view the same. Grade 3B, we will typically treat a little more aggressive, but the bottom line is still very treatable. Then, is follicular lymphoma common or rare? Dr. Evans says it's less common than other cancers, but not exactly rare. Non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, for all subtypes, it's about the sixth most common. There are approximately 80,000 new cases of all non-Hodgkin's. 
of those 80,000, follicular lymphoma accounts for about 20% of those. So I think lymphoma is not rare, but if we're saying there's only 16,000 absolute cases diagnosed a year, you know, it all depends. Yes, it's the second most common non-Hodgkin's, but compared to things like breast cancer, it's less common, but not rare. Another common characteristic of follicular lymphoma is that it's not particularly aggressive. More often than not, we'll use the word indolent slow-growing. And in many cases, patients show no symptoms leading up to their diagnosis. I would say of new diagnoses, almost a third of them are picked up incidentally. They're asymptomatic and they might have been shaving and felt a little lymph node, but otherwise feel great. As Dr. Evans mentioned, follicular lymphoma, like most lymphomas, is very treatable. And because it's slow-growing, oftentimes treatment is delayed, well after its diagnosis. We often will not rush to treatment. And so even on a new diagnosis, if a patient otherwise feels great, we might initially just observe them. I have a handful of patients who will go five, some even ten years, not need treatment. Because what we know is, yes, it's treatable, and we don't want to start to burn bridges if we don't have to, knowing that there'll be more likely than not multiple treatments over a patient's lifetime. But it's a sweet spot where you don't want to wait too long, you don't want to go too fast. Once a patient does receive treatment, do they typically respond positively? They really do. So once treatment is indicated, you would personalize that because it's not a one-size-fits-all when to treat, and it's also not a one-size-fits-all what to treat with. Regardless of the what, yes, the majority of patients with treatment when it's indicated will thankfully go into remission. Which is encouraging. But how long does remission usually last? The length of remission will partly depend on what treatment was used, but I would say the average length of remission is four to five years. But are there a handful of patients who that remission might last 10 to 15 years? Yes. And if a patient relapses, can they go back into treatment? Absolutely. With that scenario, it ends up being kind of a mini reassessment. If the treatment lasted on average or longer, sometimes you can reuse that same treatment again, especially if it was well tolerated. So it really is kind of reevaluating, and thankfully we have multiple different options to choose from. But while follicular lymphoma is treatable, the fact remains... It is a chronic disease. Even though it's treatable, we know it's more of a chronic disease. We'll often say very treatable, but not curable. Although it is a lifelong condition, can patients with follicular lymphoma expect a reasonable quality of life? Thankfully, the answer is yes to that. Especially once a patient enters remission, they should really return to their normal pre-disease activity. And even during treatment. Yes, we want to get into remission, but we want to do it with as minimal amount of therapy. Quality of life is a critical aspect. Back to Jenna and Scott's story. After a year of frustration, Scott was finally diagnosed with follicular lymphoma. He was stage three, grade one. So it was in the lymph node and it was also in his neck and in his spleen. So because I already went to an organ, they consider that stage three. So that's the actual diagnosis. It was a lot to take in. Jenna reflects on her and Scott's initial reactions. They were completely different. <laughs> Scott's reaction was more of like, oh, okay. And my instant reaction was, this is cancer and I broke down crying. It was definitely two different experiences. He was very calm. Me, I panicked. As mentioned, she and Scott have three children. 
How did they handle the news? Our kids were pretty young when he was diagnosed, so the kids didn't understand. All they knew is that daddy was sick and we had to be at the hospital a lot. But I think back then it was easier when they didn't understand. But while Scott's condition was indeed serious, the diagnosis wasn't all gloom and doom. They made it seem very positive. They said it was slow growing. So even though it was scary knowing that it was a lymphoma, it seemed pretty promising that we're gonna be okay. And with his cancer diagnosed, Scott's doctors had a treatment plan. 10 months of chemo, and then he'll go through two years of maintenance therapy. And we were trusting our doctors at this point because they are the experts, not us. So we went with the 10 months of chemo, two years of maintenance therapy. Although his condition and treatment were now known, there was something Scott's doctors did not have the answer to. He wasn't in the typical age. He was 30, and most people with liquid lymphoma are 60, 65, and then their prognosis is 10 years. So when you're 65 and have 10 years, that's okay. I think I'd be okay with that. But when you're 30, that to me made me really scared. Scott's treatment for his follicular lymphoma got off to a rocky start. His first treatment, he ended up having an allergic reaction and they had to stop the treatment. So his regimen was on day one, getting a pretty high dosage of Benadryl, followed by his then cocktail of Tandra and Rituxan. On day two, we have the second thing done. On day three, it was just a shot. So his regimen was once a month for three days. Did Scott respond positively to treatment? He did, and it showed that the cancer was getting less and less. And then when he entered into maintenance therapy, it was shown that it was in remission, but now to better his chances of keeping it in remission, we were supposed to go once a month for that rituxan treatment. But just as his chemo treatment got off to a rocky start, his maintenance therapy hit a rough patch as well. We only made it through a year, and then we started seeing his health decline again. So we were worried that it was already coming out of remission. What ended up happening is that they figured out he's actually allergic to the medication. So they decided to end the maintenance therapy. She speaks matter-of-factly, but the true fact is life became very difficult for Scott, Jenna, and their family. Life was very different. Scott was not able to work at all. When he received his treatment, he would be bedridden for almost a week. So it was very hectic. It was very hard to balance because it was always chaos. Jenna recalls how they received help from family and friends to make it through some particularly dark days. If it wasn't for a fundraiser, I probably would have lost the house. I was working a part-time job at night and on the weekends, trying to do everything I could at least to keep money coming in while he couldn't. And it was at work one day that she had a rather serendipitous encounter which would end up offering help and hope. One of my coworkers came over and she's like, you have to talk to this customer. And I'm like, okay, okay. So I went over and I greeted these two lovely ladies and we just got to talking and they're like, well, we want to know more about you. And I said, okay. And my friend was like, oh, these people work at the medical college. She's like, I really think you should tell them about your situation. It turns out one of the customers happened to be Dr. Doriel Ward, executive administrator of the CTSI. So I told them my short version of why I was working in retail with the background that I had. And they're like, well, we want to talk to you a little bit more. We have this opportunity coming up for a research program with Precision Medicine. We think you should interview. Jenna admits that although she was excited about the opportunity, some doubts set in and she didn't act on it right away. I went home and I talked to Scott and I said, like, Scott, they want me to interview for this new research program that's coming up. And he's like, go apply. And then I talked myself out of it. So I didn't go right away. Two weeks later, coming back in, Dr. Ward was like, 
you never came to apply, how come? You just need to come and apply. So I did. She interviewed, and even though she had little knowledge of precision medicine going in, she soon realized it meant not only a potential career opportunity for her, but offered hope for significantly improving the lives of people suffering from diseases. People like Scott. It really hit home for me. Wow, what Scott and I have been going through the past four years. What if his treatments could have been different? What if they would have looked at him as a 30-year-old with follicular lymphoma instead of a 65-year-old with follicular lymphoma? Jenna got the job. And today, she's a program coordinator for All of Us Wisconsin, increasing awareness of precision medicine and inspiring participation in research. To me, it's like we could do better. That's the difference that I can make, helping people be included in research or making sure that people know about the program and the importance behind it. I think it takes a few conversations to really help people understand the importance and how this can change things for our future generations. She also realizes that just like Scott's illness and its impact on their family, many people have stories people like you and me. I don't think I have a single person that couldn't relate. Everybody has kind of shared their story on why they think this program is important, whether it's their community's not represented, whether it's a sister that has a chronic condition that they don't know how to treat. You know, we all care about our families and we want something better than what we have. In fact, it's the stories that reinforce her belief that this research program truly is for all of us. It makes it lifelike, not sciencey. This is something that everybody can benefit from in some shape or form because everybody's got a reason to participate. It's for healthy, it's for sick, it's for older people, it's for our younger generations. So I love how inclusive it is. So what would Jenna ultimately like to see come out of this research program? I'm excited for new methods we can use to diagnose and treat people. If we figure out better ways to treat you as an individual, that to me would be enough. But if maybe after we get treatment right, we can start working on prevention. And while all of us is happening now in hopes of providing better health outcomes for future generations. Knowing that we did something to give them something better than what we have today, that would be the ultimate end goal is just to make sure we get our medicine right, more precise for in the future. Jenna's a realist. She knows that neither the research program nor her role in it offer any guarantee for Scott's future. Having this job, I didn't anticipate Scott being cured. I'm not counting this as Scott will be miraculously better and our life will be the way it used to be. Speaking of which, how is Scott today? We have good days where he's going to work. He's able to work again, but it's definitely not the same and not at all what we envisioned. Scott can have a day where he's so fatigued, he can't even eat dinner. So even though his cancer is in remission, he doesn't feel whole. But even on his bad days, Jenna says Scott maintains his hope in all of us, especially considering he's participating in the research program himself. He was super excited when he found out that he actually could participate. I feel he's hopeful enough that he still has a chance to benefit from it. Like he's still young enough so it's very possible that Scott could benefit from it, but we also have the realization that maybe he won't. But I truly think he thinks he's still going to be able to benefit from it. And even if Scott doesn't benefit from it, Jenna still fully believes in all of us. Maybe Scott won't benefit from this, but if I can do anything to change the outcome for my kids or my grandkids, that to me is worth it alone. Definitely worth being here and putting the time and effort into making sure people know about the All of Us Research Program. As for Dr. Evans, with the success of the All of Us Research Program, does he believe we could see a cure for follicular lymphoma in our lifetime? I think we will.
will. And it's not an easy goal, and it's a goal that will happen through science, and it'll happen through teamwork and collaboration of different scientists, different institutions, and frankly, probably a combination of different treatments for that individual patient, yes. We've made really significant progress in terms of understanding the biology of this disease, and we're able to individualize therapy better. And how the biology also helps you is it leads you to more targeted treatments. There's still a lot more to learn how we make that progress, better treatments, and listen, our goal is a cure, quite frankly, in follicular lymphoma. And so the two ways we do that are A, through science, and B, clinical trials. And if you have any doubt whether you can make a difference by participating, Jenna says there is no doubt. Don't be afraid to participate in it. Just look at opportunities that you can make a difference. So participating in research is gonna give us an option to change. If we don't participate in research, what's gonna change? We'll leave you to think about that as we wrap up this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Eric Dishman, Sarah Longenecker, Dr. Andrew Evans, and a special thanks to Jenna and Scott for sharing their inspiring story and giving a voice to all of us. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show, and I'm doubly hopeful that you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Bellmer, wishing all of us happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to this program online and on demand, please visit the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.